Hey, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and open with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And as, as you get there, I just, I just have a question for you. How many of you, either this year or in previous years, have participated in a white elephant gift exchange? Show of hands, people who've been a part of a white elephant. <clears throat> for, those, for those of you who don't know how a white elephant works, this, this is basically how it works. You bring a, a wrapped gift to a party... <clears throat> That's worth a predetermined amount of money, say between five and ten dollars. And you put your wrapped gift in a certain part of the room with everyone else's gifts. And each round of the game, you have the opportunity to either unwrap a gift that has not yet been unwrapped or to steal a gift from someone that they've already unwrapped and claimed. Now, different versions of the game have different rules, but the basic goal of a white elephant is for you to leave with a gift that you consider to be of greater value than the gift that you came with. For example, I went to a white elephant one, one time a couple years ago where I brought this giant hideous candle, you know, the type that you can put on a table and not even see the person across from you, and I left with a $10 McDonald's gift card. Now, this was a win for me for two reasons. First of all, I would much rather have a McDonald's gift card than a giant hideous candle. And second of all, I didn't even have to pay for the candle. My mom had it sitting around, and she gave it to me so that I could pass it along to some other unfortunate person who will most likely rewrap it and give it away in another white elephant exchange. On the other hand, there was a white elephant in which I brought a Nerf gun, extra darts included, and I walked away with this really boring grooming kit with things like a comb and nail clippers. I mean, who even uses that stuff? Why would you, want, why would you bring something that nice and, bring, and leave with something that useless? Some of you are a little scared right now. The, the thing about White Elephant, though, is this. White Elephant is a really fun game. It's a really fun activity to do around Christmas time. And it's a really terrible way to live your life. I mean, think about it. Everyone here knows at least one person who thinks that life is one big white elephant gift exchange. They wake up asking, what is the least that I can give? What is the least that I can bring to my job, my family, my life, you name it? And how do I take that least and change it and exchange it for something more, for something better? And if you can't think of who that person is, just ask the person next to you who they're thinking of. Now... We live in Arizona, so some of you maybe don't know what that's like. You don't know what it's like to be the white elephant person or to have met the white elephant person. But I'll tell you that the time that you see it most often is when it snows. Here's what I mean. Before Marion and I moved here, we lived in Pennsylvania, and we lived on a block with three houses on it. Now, the, we lived in the middle house, and I just have to tell you that the neighbor to my right was probably a saint because almost every time it snowed, he would walk out, and he'd shovel his sidewalk. And then he'd keep going, and he'd shovel about half of my sidewalk, leaving me with only half of a sidewalk to shovel. Now, seeing his example, sometimes I would kind of pay it forward. I would shovel my remaining half of sidewalk, and then I'd shovel half the sidewalk for this guy over here. That way, he'd only have half a sidewalk to shovel, and, you know, we keep, we keep this good thing going forward. Now, there was a period a couple years ago, and those of you who've lived in cold climates, you know what that's like. It seemed like it snowed just about every day for three weeks straight. And so just about every day, the guy over here would come out, and he'd shovel his sidewalk, and then he'd continue on, and he'd shovel about half of my sidewalk. And just about every day, I would come out, and I'd finish half of my sidewalk, the part that he didn't do, and I'd do half of this guy's sidewalk over here. 
Now, there was one time, though, that the guy over here wasn't home. And so I went out one morning, and I decided, you know, I'm just going to shovel his whole sidewalk. He's done half of mine enough to where the least that I can do is at least one time get his back and take care of his sidewalk. So I shovel his sidewalk, and then I start shoveling my sidewalk, and I couldn't believe what I saw while I was shoveling my sidewalk. The neighbor over here comes out. He goes to the far end of his sidewalk. He shovels half of it towards my sidewalk. And then he just says, hey, have a good one. And he goes back inside. It's like, it's like he saw me out there shoveling and he goes, oh, well, you know, Steve's doing his sidewalk and, and certainly he'll do, you know, the second half of my sidewalk. And so I'm just going to go back inside and drink some hot chocolate. And all that I can tell you is that it is by the grace of God that I'm able to tell you this story in person and not through a jailhouse telephone. That's all, that's all I'm going to say in the matter. Here's, here's the thing, though. If you've been with us the last handful of months, then you know that we've been going through the Gospel of Luke and that the main thing that Grady's been teaching us every week is that the most important thing that you can do with your life is to love God. We found in Luke chapter 10 that your life will be well lived if you love God with your whole self and if you love your neighbor as yourself. And so this week, we're specifically going to dive into Jesus' second statement in Luke 10 about loving your neighbor as yourself. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to be in verses 25 through 37, and we're going to see what Jesus has to say about this mindset of white elephant living. We're going to learn one truth about religious people and one truth about followers of Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles with me, we'll start in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? All right, let's stop there. So this guy who's asking Jesus this question, he's one of these law experts that we've talked about in the past. And essentially what he's asking Jesus is, what do I have to do in order to gain or inherit eternal life? By the very nature of this guy's question, what he's asking is this. He's saying, what is the least that I can do? What is the least amount of good that I can do in order to stay on God's good side? How do I give the least and get the most? It's the classic question that you ask when you're trying to find something to bring for a white elephant. What do I have around here that is worth the least that I really don't want, and how do I bring that, how do I trade that for something that I consider to be worth much more? Verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. All right, so Jesus asked this guy what he thinks the answer to his question is, and he says that it's to love God with your whole self and to love your neighbor as yourself. Let me ask you this. Where do you think this guy got this answer of loving God and loving your neighbor? This first part about loving God with your whole self is part of a prayer that Jews would pray twice a day. But the second part of loving your neighbor as yourself seems historically to have originated with Jesus. Historically speaking, Jesus was either the first or at least one of the first people to link these two aspects of loving God and loving your neighbor as one thought. And so here's what's going on here. This guy has probably heard Jesus speak before. He's probably heard Jesus say on many occasions that all of life comes down to loving God with your whole self and loving your neighbor as yourself. And as you can see in the text, he agrees with Jesus' theology. He knows the law well, and he knows that there are no more important commands than loving God and loving people. Verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. 
But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Leave it to the lawyer to ask that question. See, this, this guy, he's a little frustrated with Jesus because Jesus did not clearly answer his question of what is the least that he can do and the most that he can get, both now and in eternity. And, and it's interesting because you get the feeling, don't you, that this guy, this isn't the first time that this guy has asked a question like this. He's the kind of guy who, growing up, kids, maybe you've done this, parents, maybe you've had your kids do this. His mom would ask him to do the dishes, and he'd go over to the sink, and real quick, he'd wash two dishes, and then he'd walk away. And later on, his mom would say, didn't I ask you to do the dishes? And he would say, well, I washed two dishes. Two dishes. Plural. You never said to do all of the dishes. And so he knows, he knows how he's gotten through life up to this point. He knows that it's worked for him. And he's going, it's worked for me down here. Surely it can work for me up there. So, okay, Jesus, let's cut to the chase. What do I have to do? How do I get this over with? And that's why he asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So we've got a guy in the story who, just by the nature of going about his business, just making a trip to run an errand, just like you and I do every day, he gets attacked, robbed, and left for dead. And I just have to mention that this is real life, isn't it? Maybe you've had a day that started out just fine, but when you got to work that day, there was an email or or a note from your boss in your inbox that says that he or she wants to meet with you at 4.30. And what does he or she want to talk about? downsizing you. And you leave that conversation feeling like you've been left for dead. Or maybe you've gotten that phone call where completely out of nowhere, someone gives you bad news about your health or your home or your family or your career, and you hang up the phone, and you feel like you've been left for dead. You don't know why. You weren't asking for any kind of trouble. You were a good employee, a good spouse, a good neighbor, but all of a sudden you've been blindsided, and you feel like you've been left for dead. Do you know anyone who's received the layoff notice or the terminal diagnosis? Do you know anyone who's been left for dead? Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. All right, so we have have this priest who's one of the most important religious figures of their day and whose only job is to teach people how to love God and how to love others. And he sees this man in desperate need of health, of help rather, and all that he does is cross over to the other side. This leads us to our observation about religious people, and if you're following along in your bulletins, you can write this down. Religious people see their own needs as their first priority. Religious people see their own needs as their first priority. Some of you may have heard this story talked about in the past, and you may have heard that because of his commitments, because of his covenants, that it would somehow be impossible for this priest to help this man in need. That because of the laws of Moses and the things that he had committed to do, even if he wanted to help this guy, he couldn't. And I just have to tell you that that's simply not the case. That all of the laws that God gave to the priests were all designed in order to help them help people. It was never, don't help this person if... It was always, if a person is experiencing this or is going through this, this is how you help them. 
And because there were so many laws for the priests to know and to follow, if ever they were confused as to how to approach a certain situation, if ever they weren't sure, do I follow this law or this law, essentially, God gave them a quick answer. You don't have to turn there now, but Micah 5, 2, this is basically what God says. He says, in any situation that you encounter, the thing that I most want to see from you is for you to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly beside me. And so if ever you're in a situation where you're not sure what to do, where you're not sure how to approach it, I want you to ask, what is the most just, merciful, and humble thing for me to do right now and to go do that thing? And so this priest's decision not to help this man had nothing to do with his desire to maintain his purity towards God. It had everything to do with his belief that his needs were more important than the dying man's needs. He's a priest. He's got work to do. He has to keep his robes clean. He's got to get dinner. He's got to prepare his message for temple. I mean, yeah, this dude in the road, he, he's in need, but, but who isn't? And besides, surely someone else will see this guy. Surely someone else will help him. And so the priest proves that religious people see their own needs as their first priority. And so the Levite comes along, and he sees the man. And the Levite is kind of like the priest, Every time the temple doors are open, he's there. He wouldn't miss a temple event if his life depended on it. He's involved in setup and teardown and cook-offs, you name it. If you need it to be done around the temple, he's the guy to do it. And so he's coming down the road, and he sees the man in the same condition. And like the priest, he's going, yeah, I mean, clearly this guy needs help, but I need help too. I've got needs too. I need to get home. I need to stay clean. I need to pick up some supplies for the temple. And I really, really need to make sure that whatever happened to this guy doesn't happen to me. Besides, he's thinking, I'm a Levite. Levites help people around the temple. That's what we do. That's our job. Anything outside the temple, it's not my job. And besides, surely someone else will see this guy. Surely someone else will help him. So he leaves the dying man where he is, and he too crosses over to the other side. And when he crosses over to the other side, he proves that religious people see their own needs as their first priority. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. All right, for our audience that's first hearing this story, our story has just taken a dramatic turn. The folks who are listening to Jesus tell this story, they're sitting up in their seats and they're going, wait, wait, what just happened? See, Jesus was speaking to a largely Jewish audience. And so it's assumed that this man who's been left for dead is a Jewish man. And in ancient Israel, you had these two groups, Jews and Samaritans, and they hated each other. They coexisted, but just barely. Again, for those of you who are parents, you know what it's like to have two kids who are always fighting. It's kind of like that, except there's about half a million of them, and they've got weapons. If, if, this story, if this story was happening in our day and in our town, Jesus would have just said that an Arizona Cardinals fan was found lying, dying in the middle of the road, and the only person that came to his aid was a Dallas Cowboys fan. Ooh. And, and, and some of you are going, no, just leave me alone. Uh. <laughs> Nevertheless... Nevertheless, our Cowboys fan sees our Cardinals fan in need, and immediately, the text says, he begins going to him and bandaging him up. This Samaritan man is a man who had no relationship with and no vested interest in the welfare of this Jewish man. 
The Samaritans had a saying at the time that went something like this. It said, the only good Jew is a dead Jew. And the Jews said the same things about Samaritans. And I can hear some of our Cardinals fans saying the same thing about our Cowboys fans. And yet, and yet, this Samaritan man sees the Jewish man in need, and what does the text say happens? It says that he is filled with compassion for him, and immediately he goes over and starts bandaging his wounds. Why? Because the truth about Jesus followers is this. It's that Jesus followers see others' needs as their first priority. Jesus followers see others' needs as their first priority. There is no reason, geographical, familial, historical, political, that this Samaritan man ought to consider this Jewish man his neighbor. No Jewish man has probably done anything good for him in his life. And yet, verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The Samaritan man dropped everything that he was doing and any plans that he had in order to render help to this helpless Jewish man. Why? Because Jesus' followers see others' needs as their first priority. A few weeks ago, our church put on a holiday gift store for some families of kids who attend this school. We had some people who, that day alone, not including the time that they spent getting ready for the event beforehand— They spent close to 12 hours here helping to get this place ready for and put on and clean up from this gift store. They physically and emotionally exhausted themselves in order to put on a gift store for people they never met. Why do you think they did that? Because they're Jesus followers. And Jesus followers see others' needs as their first priority. We even had a couple families here, I'm not going to name them by name, but they essentially took all of the money that they had saved up for themselves and for each other for Christmas, and they spent it buying toys for strangers to give to their kids on Christmas. Why do you think they did that? Because they're Jesus followers, and Jesus followers see others' needs as their first priority. Verse 35. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will come back and repay you. So this Samaritan man, motivated only by compassion, is not just going to render this man first aid and then drop him off at the nearest hospital. He doesn't just want to see the Jewish man not die. He wants to see him get well. He doesn't just care about this man's immediate needs. He cares about all of his needs. Regardless of the cost, regardless of the inconvenience, regardless of the effort, Jesus' followers commit themselves to seeing people, families, and communities restored and made whole. Jesus' followers see others' needs as their first priority. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about the Christian story, about our story that you might not know. Did you know that Christians were the first major group of people to allow women to own property. See, historically, if a woman's husband died, her money and her possessions automatically belonged to her closest male relative or to the government. These transactions would oftentimes leave women poor, homeless, and essentially left to die alone. The Christians, though, they said, that's not okay, that no one should be allowed to force a widow to give up her stuff. And so they worked hard, and they petitioned their government, and they did whatever they could to change laws wherever they could in order to allow women to own property. Why do you think they did that? 
Why do you think they took up that cause? Because they were Jesus followers. And Jesus followers see others' needs as their first priority. The first hospitals in the world were built by Christians. See, up until the Christians came along, it was assumed that if someone was sick, it was somehow their own fault. And so every other person's first priority ought to be simply to not get sick. Yes, your brother, your mom, your sister, your dad might be sick, and they might need to be cared for. But your first priority should simply be that you don't get sick. And the sick people, look, we hope that they get well, but, but they just need to take care of themselves. Christians, though, said that sick people are people who need to be made well. And so they decided to build these places for sick people to come and to be healed from their sickness. They said that the health of other people, regardless of whether or not they were Christians, is more important than their own health. And they, tro- and they chose to take care of them, no matter what it cost them. Why do you think they did that? Because they're Jesus followers. And Jesus followers see others' needs as their first priority. Christians were the first people to educate the poor. At one point in history, education had been reserved for the wealthy. And so if you were poor, you couldn't afford to go to school. And if you couldn't afford to go to school, you wouldn't be able to get a better job. And so you'd always be poor. Christians, though, felt that every child should have the opportunity to learn to read and write. And so especially in America, after the Industrial Revolution, when you had kids working in factories six days a week, the Christians came up with this way to help kids be able to learn these vital skills. After church on Sunday, many of them gave of their time and their resources and their energy to this brand new program that they had invented. Does anyone want to guess what it was called? Sunday school. It was here that kids could learn these basic skills that they weren't learning the rest of the week because they were working. Why do you think they did that? Why did they give of their time and their energy and their one day off a week to help kids learn to read and write? Because they're Jesus followers. And Jesus followers see others' needs as their first priority. When when I lived in in downtown Chicago, I I had a friend who had an apartment not too far from where I went to school, and so one night he and I were going to go hang out for a while at his place, and so I decided to walk there, and and, uh, I I was going to go pick up some groceries at the grocery store, and while I'm waiting in line to pay for my groceries, this Middle Eastern man in front of me uh, offers to pay for my groceries, and and initially I said, thanks, but no thanks, but but he insisted, and so so I let him, and and so we get out of the grocery store, and I start walking my way, and he starts going his way, and, and and he gets my attention again, and, and he points me over to the cab that he's driving. And, and he didn't even know where I was going, but he tried to offer me a free ride to, to where I was going. And again, I said thanks, but no thanks. But again, he insisted, and, and so I got in his cab. And as we arrived at my friend's place, I pulled out my wallet to at least give him a little bit of cash for his time, but, but he wouldn't take it. Instead, he simply invited me to dinner and to mosque with him. He wrote down his phone number and said that I could invite anyone that I wanted to come with, that he'd pick us up sometime just to let him know what day and time. He'd take us out to dinner. He'd take us to mosque. He'd give us a ride home. It was all on him. And then he drove off, never accepting a dime from me. This man is what you might call a moderate Muslim. He he would be the first person to tell you that Muslims do not believe that they have any kind of personal relationship with God. And yet I could tell that when I got in his cab, if I told him that I needed a ride from Chicago to Honolulu, he would have somehow made it happen, if I might somehow come to faith in his God. Did you know that Islam 
is widely considered to be the fastest growing religion in the world today. And it's not growing in the places where they're killing or terrorizing people. Believe it or not, that's not very attractive. It's growing fastest in the places where they're opening schools and hospitals and homeless shelters and soup kitchens. Where do you think they got that idea from? Do you think that it's possible that the reason that that is happening is simply because we have dropped our playbook and they've picked it up? Can you imagine what our growing city of Maricopa could be like and would be like if followers of Jesus, just like you and just like me, dedicated ourselves to seeing people, families, and neighborhoods restored and made whole? Do you think that it's possible that our world has never been more ready for a revolutionary work of the Spirit of God through the people of God than it is right now? I do. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, whenever you talk about a topic like this, of being a religious person or a follower of Jesus, I think it's important to have something that you can do with this stuff to help you decide which of these two things you want to be. I don't just want to ask you if you are a religious person or a Jesus follower, because Jesus didn't just say to the lawyer, go and memorize this principle. He said, go and do also. And so I want to give you two opportunities that you can use to put this principle into action. The first one is, if you're able to, I'd like to invite you to stay after church with us and to help us tear down some stuff from our Christmas Eve service. As you can see, we, we had a great team that came in uh, this past week and, and just totally transformed this place for Christmas Eve. And, and I'd just like to ask you that if you have a few minutes that you could spare to help us clean up some of the stuff, to, to, to choose to do that. Now, obviously, if you have family in town, if you have somewhere that you need to be, if you've got a plane to catch, by all means, go and do that, okay? But if you have the ability, I just invite you to stay after church for a little while and, and just spend a little time with us, taking, taking this stuff down. It's a simple, it's a practical, hands-on way for, to go from saying, you know what, the easy thing for me to do would simply be to leave and get in my car and go home. But today, I'm going to take this principle of seeing others' needs as my first priority. I'm going to put that into action. And so because I'm able to, I'm going to stay for a while. Again, if you have somewhere you need to be, go, go and do that. But if you have the ability to, I'd invite you to join us as we do that. The second thing that you can do in order to take this idea of making others' needs your first priority and make it into a reality is this. I want you to go to the bank, and here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to take out $20. And if you can't afford $20, then whatever you can take out is fine. And I want you to just keep that money with you, whether it's in your wallet your purse, or wherever, and just to ask God to help you see someone whose needs are more important than yours. Maybe it'll be this week, maybe it'll be next month, just sometime in the next year. I want you to, to keep an eye out and to be open for who is that person who needs this, who needs something that you could buy for them with this, or who needs you to give this to them so that you can say, hey, look, I just want you to know that your needs matter, and, and that your needs are more important than mine, and I just want you to have this. Maybe, maybe it'll be a mom at a grocery store where you see her come up to the checkout line, and, and God's just going to put something on your heart. You know, that's, that's the person 
That's the person who's in need. And so you're going to go up to her and say, excuse me, I, I don't know you, but I just want you to know that your needs matter, and so I'd like to help pay for your groceries. Maybe it'll be someone driving a car at a gas station where you're filling up your gas tank, and, and you see them pull in, and, and you don't know why, but there's going to be this little thing in your head, this little voice that's going to say, that's, that's the person. That's the person who's in need. And so you're going to go up to them, and you're going to say, excuse me, I was wondering if it'd be okay for me to, to put some gas in your car. Maybe it'll be at a restaurant or a doctor's office or while you're at work. I don't know. But the point is that you'll be doing your part of keeping your eye open, of keeping in constant contact with God and asking him, hey, God, will you help me to see someone else who needs this, someone else whose needs are more important than mine? And the cool thing is you'll already have what you need in order to put that desire and that realization into action. So again, today after church, if you're able to, I'd invite you to stay and help us do some teardown. And regardless of whether you can do that or not, this week, I want you to go to the bank. I want you to take out $20. And if, again, if you can't do 20 whatever you can afford, and just keep that with you and start asking God, who's the person? Who's in need? Whose needs matter to you, God? Help me to see that their, their needs should matter to me as well. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your word to us and your reminder that you don't just call us to memorize principles. You call us to take action based on what you say. Lord, I ask that you would uh, just show us who those people are. Show us who that person is who has needs, whose needs that we can meet. Help us not to see our own needs as our first priority, but rather to see their needs as our first priority. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.